Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing the challenges and questions associated with the reopening of colleges and universities amid the COVID-19 pandemic. To examine this are IDSA members, Dr. Preeti Malani with the University of Michigan and IDSA board member, Dr. Carlos Del Rio of Emory University. Thank you both for being here. Dr. Malani, I'd like to start with you. Physical distancing, as you know, face coverings and hand hygiene are key tools for preventing transmission and central to recommendations from CDC regarding safe openings of both universities and colleges. How can these institutions of higher learning enforce and foster these strategies? Before answering that question, I just want to talk a little bit about where we've been since March, which feels like a lifetime ago, when within a matter of a few days, every college in the U.S. really made a very rapid pivot to remote learning. And at that moment, it was really more like flipping a switch, just getting everyone home. Health and safety was the only consideration. And now it's July and we're poised to return to limited face-to-face learning and what is uh, being called hybrid model at most schools where some things are remote, uh, but some smaller classes are, are hopefully gonna be done in person. But unfortunately, the pandemic is out of control right now. So that much of the planning uh, is having to be looked at closely. So this is complicated and residential learning, I I do believe can be done in a public health informed manner. And you asked about physical distancing and face coverings and hand hygiene. And again, these are really the only tools we have at this time. And any discussion around safe opening has to include these interventions. Hand hygiene is probably the easiest because you can have adequate supplies and encourage people to keep their hands clean. Physical distance is also something that can be done with limitations on density and methods like controlled access and environmental controls, like marking the floors and sidewalks. Classrooms and buses are a little bit harder. Six feet all around is just not feasible. Um, There aren't enough classrooms that are that big, which is why the third intervention, face coverings, are, in my opinion, really the most important intervention, even though these might be the hardest to implement in some ways. And as you know, about half the states have mandates right now on face coverings. Uh, The others allow, uh, most of them at least, allow for local uh, jurisdiction in this area. Uh, And it had really focused mostly on enclosed spaces, but now it's really moved to outdoor spaces as well. What I would say is with all these interventions, really written policies, clear communication, consistent communication on why these things need to be done. And signage is really important along with acknowledgement that things are changing every day. We have to look at the local epidemiology. A college in you know, upstate New York may be totally fine opening right now. A college in Miami you know, may not be right opening right now. It is really a very complicated situation because the local epidemiology is driving everything. And I think all of us need to, to work closely with our public health authorities and look at the data and really make decisions based on data. And I think that needs to be guide what we do. Excellent points from both of you. Thank you, doctors. Dr. Del Rio, I'd like to stick with you and examine methods of learning and how the pandemic is causing their transformation. Will universities and colleges be relying more on online learning platforms or can in-person classes be made safe? 
Well, again, I go back to what we said, and I'll hammer that over and over. You have to look at your local epidemiology. And if you have a lot of community transmission, and I call a lot of community transmission in places where you have over 100 cases reported per 100,000 population, and a positivity rate in your testing over 10%, it may not be possible. If you're in a place that has low transmission, and by low transmission, I mean less than 10 cases per 100,000 population, and a positivity rate under 5%, it may be totally positive. So you cannot make broad statements about what is positive and possible and what is not without looking at your local epidemiology. And you may be making very different decisions in a place that is low transmission versus in a place that is high transmission. I think what we need to, to be is very agile and, and be rapidly able to pivot. And I do think that this is actually, you know, in every, in every challenge is an opportunity. This really is an opportunity to really rethink how we make education better. Again, we need to modernize education and this is a great opportunity to really look at, at more creative ways of, of engaging with students in, in, in at different levels. I think at the university level, we have a lot of opportunities here to really be very creative and do things outside the box. I would agree, Carlos, with everything you said. And I will add one of the complicating factors is that uh, as you start the school year, people are traveling in really not only from all over the country, but all over the world. And figuring out those first few weeks and exactly what you're going to do to make things safe is, uh, is perhaps the hardest piece. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. I think it's that, but also is is a social component, right? I mean, we can make classrooms as safe as we can, but then there's a fraternity party and, and all goes to hell. So it really is not just what happens in the classroom. I'm more concerned about what happens outside the classroom that really is gonna drive transmission. So you talked about being agile and having the ability to pivot Dr. Del Rio, Dr. Milani, feel free to weigh in here as well. Will colleges have to end the semester early and send students home to finish out the semester online as they did in the spring? Or are we gonna see a situation like Dr. Del Rio described? You have to come up with the right combination of both effective and safe learning. I think the answer is both, depends, right? Depends what happens. Right now, what, what you can see is you can divide schools in schools that are starting in August and ending before Thanksgiving. Schools that are waiting to start later, like September, October, and, and going straight through December and schools that are going fully online. You know, I think we're gonna see different models and I think we just need to study them and see what happens. But again, the local epidemiology is gonna determine what the outcomes are. And, and we need to do a better job controlling the epidemic. We currently have, the house is on fire. The country's on fire. We have an uncontrolled epidemic in most of the country, but particularly in states in the South and in the West. And if we don't do something to stop that right now, Whatever we say about, you know, I mean, I almost feel thinking about how we're going to conduct classes. I almost feel like we're sitting in the Titanic. We've hit the iceberg and somebody's coming and saying, where do you think we ought to put the chairs? I mean, it's irrelevant. We're all going to get wet. Thank you for that perspective, Dr. Del Rio. Let's talk about screening, Dr. Milani. What techniques will be most effective for protecting students, staff, professors, and the administration while on campus. So Nadia, the discussions around screening tend to focus a lot on testing. And at this moment, there's not a way to really test everyone on a regular basis on scale. Although baseline testing and random surveillance have a role, uh, it's important to really understand the limitations of asymptomatic testing. You're gonna miss cases. You may pick up individuals who are not infectious. 
And the highest yield will probably just be in the more congregate settings, residence halls and the fraternities, sororities and the like. Uh, but that is, uh, that is separate from testing of individuals of symptoms. It's absolutely necessary and needs to be a central aspect of back to campus planning. Not just testing and screening of individuals with symptoms, and really I'm talking even mild symptoms, is rapid turnaround testing and then all the pieces that come after that, uh, the quarantine of close contacts, contact tracing on scale. The other aspect I think about when you ask about screening is daily symptom monitoring. Things, you know, questions like, do you have a cough? Do you have shortness of breath, fever, loss of smell or taste? And this type of monitoring is feasible and I believe it will be done a lot of places. And although you can debate the utility, it's a type of daily check that's gonna be with all of us. And any symptom, even mild, should really prompt one, a decision not to leave home that day, not to go to class, not to go to work, uh, and to seek medical advice on what to do next. The testing is a key component, but also I have to say that we need rapid turnaround in the testing. And unfortunately right now, because of the surge, a lot of our testing capabilities are going to take care of patients. And I really think that if we don't bring the epidemic down, we simply are not gonna have the testing capacity to have the rapid turnaround on testing for students that we would like to have. I, I would agree. And in fact, Carlos, last week, we learned that we were having all of a sudden, again, supply chain issues. You know, just things that we thought were taken care of uh, back again to, to where some of the testing reagents are in, and other materials are in short supply again. And so it, uh, it forces you to rethink how you test and who you test and how you test them. Great perspectives, doctors. Thank you. Dr. Del Rio, let's talk about living arrangements. As you know, colleges and universities offer living situations that are traditionally shared. How will universities and colleges adapt to accommodate students safely? And is there even a way to make on-campus housing safer in the time of COVID-19? I mean, I think there's a way people have talked about, you know, obviously individual rooms or at most uh, a shared room, uh, you know, limited number of students in, in housing, uh, almost having like pods, right? This residential unit is a pod. They will stick together. They all have classes together. They all move together. But again, everything breaks down the moment you start having social activities and people mix or people decide to go out or people decide to go to a restaurant or people decide to go to a nightclub. So I think that the living arrangements, you can, you can arrange it all you want, but it's going to be up to what happens outside the living arrangements that you're going to have the epidemic happen. I can make the living arrangements fine, but are the students gonna to stick to the living arrangements? Thank you, Dr. Del Rio. Dr. Milani, turning back to you now, what kinds of protocols should be in place to handle shared or communal areas to ensure physical distancing and barriers? Communal areas are really designed for togetherness and college campuses are designed for togetherness. And so ensuring physical distancing means really having to rethink and recreate these spaces and you can, you can do all the recreating you want and things still may not work, but a lot of it can be accomplished with physical cues in the form of tape and signage and limits on the number of people, as well as how long you can even stay in a particular place. There is a lot of plexiglass being used in some spaces. I, I think on our campus, one of the best examples is around the bus drivers, really to help protect that driver who might be in the bus for eight hours or longer. Some communal spaces are going to have to remain closed. And again, we don't have control all over the whole campus, but at least the campus, uh, the residence halls, which is where 
the bulk of the students live uh, and they live in the largest numbers, some of those spaces sadly will have to be closed. Others can be refitted to limit the numbers of people and to limit activities. And it might mean taking furniture out of a study space and it might mean closing every other stall in a shared restroom. But it also means thinking about new spaces, especially outdoors. Can you put up a tent outside if the weather allows where people can eat lunch? Because again, the, the ability to gather safely and in these pods, sort of what, what Carlos mentioned is really important because the well-being social aspects are really important and they need to be balanced with the risk of, uh, of COVID infection. One of the other things is what about all the extra furniture you've taken out of one room? Can you use uh, spaces like ballrooms? Because there isn't really a need for large gatherings. Can you make that a new study space? So it really requires uh, an overall rethinking of spaces to sort of reframe what you can do instead of all the things you can't do. I'd like to pose this next question to both of you. What about sports? Can college sports even be played safely at this point? Dr. Del Rio. Well, again, depends on the sport, right? There's some sports like tennis, you could probably play just fine. There's some sports like wrestling, which probably are complicated. Um, the sport, and everybody thinks about college sports. Most people think about football and think about basketball. I think there you have some challenges. And again, uh, with the current amount of transmission, it's going to be hard. But, you know, as much as you can do, uh, uh, you know, face masks, as much as long as much as you can do face shields, as much as you can do that kind of thing, you may be able to do it. Testing is going to be critical. But I think that the, the, the challenge with football is one of the most complicated ones. I think sports are really tough. And I, I say this as someone who, who loves sports, especially college football. In, in addition to Dr. Del Rio's comments, I have a few other thoughts. And, and again, just reiterate that not all sports are the same in terms of risk. I think golf and tennis are very different than football and basketball for obvious reasons. I've really, in my mind, divided this into return to training versus return to competition. And for obvious reasons, return to competition is more complicated. It adds travel as an important risk, as does not just the, the student athletes, but all the media and the staff and the coach that are coaches that are involved. And this idea of just-in-time point-of-care taste testing, it sounds great in theory, but currently it's not realistic for a lot of locations. Uh, this might change. And when we're talking about not having enough testing for clinical care, it's really hard to to uh, siphon off tests for, uh, for things that are less essential. And they're gonna be, I, I think, some unknowns with this. Uh, some of the, the uh, conferences have come out and said, well, we're not gonna play any outside conference games and we're gonna sort of see how things evolve. But given that, that uh, football in particular is a, a national sport, I, I think it's gonna be, uh, it's gonna present some difficulties, but Again, there may be ways to rethink the season, to shift the season. I think we're learning a lot also about profession, how professional sports are doing it. And we'll have to see what happens. But you know, even in professional sports, a lot of the players have already tested positive. And, and we're talking about sports like baseball. And again, they didn't infect playing, get infected playing baseball. They got infected outside, right? That, I, I'm glad you brought up the professional sports issue because people talk a lot about the pods and the, uh, you know, the bubbles. And I think the problem is, is that there's still a lot of unknowns around risk. And one of the things I see in discussions, particularly in the media, is the focus on mortality. But the morbidity 
of COVID infection can be very high, especially in young people. And I've seen things, uh, prolonged illness. I think the emotional effects of being isolated for days on end is, is important consideration. The academic effects, these are student athletes. And the student part is important. Do people fall behind in class? And again, because they're student athletes, they're part of the broader community. They live amongst other students. It used to be that you could say, well, they, they're gonna be in class with everyone else on Monday. And whether people are actually in class or not is gonna depend on what class they're taking. It, it's complicated in the best of scenarios. And I, I think with certain parts of the nation with completely out of control spread, it's, it's hard to envision this happening in a normal way right now. And, and trust me, we all want sports. I mean, I think that we're all, Fans, uh, we think I, I think sports are really important in the in the social construct and in the society health, but but we have we have messed up as a country. We really have not done our our job, and now we're saying, oh my God, I wish I could open schools. I wish I could open sports. To be honest, I feel like we you know we threw a party, we all got drunk, and now we're paying the consequences. One of my friends tweeted something today, and it said, it, I thought it was it was really poignant was the idea that we were given an open book test and we failed. Very so, much so. Yeah. So even, you know, even in the best of circumstances, getting back to that face-to-face -face learning, we knew it would be really difficult. But I find it interesting that some schools that had initially planned on being in residence have actually rescinded those decisions. And a lot of them are in places where the pandemic is is all around them. I think the Midwest is in, in, in a better situation and most of the Big Ten is planning on being in residence in a, in a careful way, in a way that mitigates risk with the understanding that there's gonna be residual risk, but there's also some benefit for being in residence. This can only happen if community spread is controlled. And I think the next couple weeks are gonna be very, very key. And one of the, the final concern I would just note is that everyone, faculty, staff, students, parents, they have to not only be safe, but they have to feel safe about coming back. Doctors, I'd like to open the floor now to ask you both to drive home the most important points you feel uh, parents and institutions of higher learning should know as they try to come up with plans to keep students and staff safe. Well, you know, as, as an infectious disease physician, I see my colleagues and I see other healthcare workers, first of all, uh, tired. They're working very hard. They're exhausted. This is, this is a marathon and, and we see no end to it. Uh, we're also frustrated because of a lack of political leadership and the the dysfunctionality uh, of the response to the pandemic, the lack of funding for public health, and the way that we opened too soon without taking the necessary precautions. And again, we could have opened it and say, look, we're going to start opening the economy, but you must wear a mask. You must practice social distance. We just said open. It's fine. Go ahead and do what you need to do has us in the situation we are right now. And I, I feel like uh, it's, a, it's really very frustrating. And it's something that, that I'm incredibly uh, saddened about because we knew what to do as a nation and we have failed. The, the response of our country to the pandemic has simply been a, a failure. And, uh, and we could do better. And I would hope that in the absence of political leadership, it is us in the front lines, it is us like the Infectious Society of America, like clinicians that really step up to the plate and do the right thing because the country is in, in need right now 
of information and leadership. And I appreciate IDSA doing this because information is so critical today. You know, this is, this is quite personal to me. Also, I have, uh, I have a, a student at home. I have a, a child who'll be starting his third year of, of college and it's not gonna be the same as it was last year. And hopefully things will improve and it'll feel more like normal next year. But I would just say that this is gonna be a shared responsibility, a social contract of sorts to see success. And if everyone does the right thing, it'll be a good semester. It won't be, it won't be like usual and it won't be perfect, but we can keep people healthy. We can have some of the benefits of being together. But if we have people all over uh, who are not doing their fair share, uh, we're all gonna sink very quickly and the semester will end before it should. But I would also add to that, this is an opportunity for young people to get engaged, to get involved. And I think that we can we can do the right thing and we need to get young people. Those university students are gonna tell us how to get out of this. And I would encourage that every institution of higher education, whether they do on live or they do uh, distance learning, they invite the students to really bind together and find the way out of this crisis. It is really up to them to do the right thing. You know, I think one of the silver linings of this is that I hope a lot of those students become interested in public health and science and whatever aspects of it as they move forward with their lives. Couldn't agree with you more. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Milani and Del Rio for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.